Father Chairman, my dear brethren and sisters, in the Lord Jesus Christ. As our brother James has reminded us, in our last class we considered the call of Philip and Nathaniel. And at the end of chapter 1 we find Christ in company with his, his newly gathered disciples around him with the testimony that he is the, both the son of God and the son of man. And that little scene now takes us into, into chapter 2 where we find we are brought to that final day of the first week of the Lord's ministry. When we say it was the seventh day of that week we're not implying that it was a Sabbath day. The first day of the week, week of the Lord's ministry may, may not have been the first day of the, of the week, making the seventh day a Sabbath. It could have been any day of the week. And so it was not necessarily a Sabbath day. But it was the completion of the first week of the Lord's ministry. And in, in John chapter 2 and verse 1 we read, and the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee. It's very interesting that we're brought to the third day. Now that third day, we believe, is the third day from the day mentioned in verse 43 of chapter 1, which as James pointed out to us in his resume, was the fourth day of that first week. And that's the last day that's mentioned in John chapter 1, the fourth day of the week. And so from that fourth day we're brought to the third day. So this third day was both the third day and also the seventh day, being the seventh day of the first week and being the third day from the last day mentioned. It's very interesting because both the numbers 3 and 7 are significant, particularly in relation to the events that took place on that day. You see, the number 3 is a number that in Scripture is frequently associated with resurrection. We go to the first the days of the creation week. And on the third day of that week, the earth was raised up out of the waters. We all know, of course, that it was upon the third day that the Lord Jesus Christ rose up out of the grave. It was on the third day that Abraham received Isaac back again to life when he was instructed to offer him as a burnt offering in Genesis 22. And uh, Paul says in Hebrews 11 that in a figure he received him back from the dead and that was on the third day. So you see the association with the num- of the number three with resurrection. We find also, of course, that in these scriptures there are three main covenants of promise. It's the covenant in Eden, the covenant with Abraham, and the covenant with David, which, which form the three foundation stones of the, of the truth. So there were three covenants. Again in Exodus 19 and verse 11 where Yahweh was going to establish the Mosaic covenant with the people of Israel. They were to gather at the foot of Mount Sinai and it was on the third day that Yahweh spoke to them and spoke the words of the Ten Commandments, the covenant that he made with them at that time. So we see that three has these associations. It speaks of resurrection and it speaks of covenant. 
And here, of course, we, we read of resurrection through the making of a covenant. The number seven is also significant. That is also the covenant number. In the Hebrew, the word for seven is, is, is very similar to the word for oath. And so seven speaks of a covenant. It also speaks of completion. Just as the work of creation was completed on the seventh day. And on the seventh day of that creation week, when the creation week was brought to its completion, God rested as we know. In the typical outworking of things, the seventh 1,000 year period from creation will bring to completion the purpose of God. On that seventh day of 1,000 years, we will see Christ and the Ecclesia united in marriage. And they will bring forth upon that day children. They will bring forth children which at the end of the millennium will be presented up to God. And then a greater marriage will take place when we read that God will become all in all. And so God will be at one with all his creation at that time. And these things will happen on the seventh day. So you see, as we look at this day, this third day and seventh day, in this uh, week, of first week of Christ's ministry, we can understand the thoughts that have been coming into the Lord's mind as he came to that third day, a day which speaks of resurrection through the making of a covenant. Also the seventh day, speaking of that day when Christ and his ecclesia will be united together in marriage. And see, these would be the thoughts that would be filling his mind at that time. And how significant it is that here, having obtained his newly found disciples, first little group of disciples, that he should take them straight away on this day to an event which was designed to project their minds into the future and to bring before them many profound lessons concerning their present preparation. And so the very day of the week was significant, speaking of resurrection and marriage to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we read in verse 1 there of, um, of, of John chapter 2, and the third day there was a marriage. How significant that there should be a marriage on this particular day as we see these, uh, these, these associations uh, uh, brought together. A marriage, of course, as we well know because we're reminded often enough, Marriage is a typical event, pointing forward to the union of Christ and his ecclesia in the future times. Perhaps we could just refresh our memory by looking at Ephesians chapter 5. In Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 32 we read, where Christ has been, through the preceding verses, he has been speaking of them. Um, of Christ and the Ecclesia. He's been speaking of the, the formation of Eve out of Adam and the, the marriage and the things that were pronounced upon the marriage of Adam and Eve. And he says in verse 32, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the Ecclesia. And that word mystery, of course, doesn't mean something that can't be understood. 
It means something that was once hidden but is now revealed. And it is revealed concerning Christ and the Ecclesia. And in the future time, on that seventh day, Christ and the Ecclesia will be united together in marriage. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 10 shows us that it is the purpose of God that ultimately he should unite everything together in one through the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 10 of Ephesians 1, that in the dispensation of the fullness of time, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. And so this uh, principle of marriage, where a man and a woman are united together as one, is used as a type of the future union of the Lord Jesus Christ and his saints. And it expresses the very purpose of God to unite all things together in one in Christ Jesus. In ancient times, it is claimed by some authorities that, that uh, marriages or weddings were spread over a much longer period than they are today. We, when we think of a wedding, we think of a, an event that lasts, takes up one evening, perhaps lasts two or three hours. But in ancient times, a wedding feast and the wedding festivity might have taken as long as seven days or even 14 days, some authorities say. We do have the principle set forth in Scripture in the occasion of the marriage of Samson in Judges chapter 14, where there we're told in the inspired word that in those days wedding feasts did take a considerable period of time. In uh, Judges 14 and verse 12, we read, And Samson said unto them, I will now put forth a riddle unto you. If ye can certainly declare it me within the seven days of the feast and find it out, then I will give you thirty sheets and thirty changes of garments. So here was a wedding feast that lasted seven days. And for seven days the, that, that feast uh, continued as the uh, uh, people would come together to rejoice over the union that was to take place and to give words of encouragement and exhortation to the uh, new, new, newly married couple or the couple that were to be newly married. And so we find that marriages in those days did take a much longer period of time. Seven days is the principle set forth there in the book of Judges. I believe when we come to the book of Matthew, and the words of the Lord Jesus Christ as he sets forth in Matthew chapter 22. We come to understand the typical or the anti-typical significance of these things. In Matthew 22 verses 1 to 14, the Lord Jesus Christ set a parable before the people of his day. We won't read the whole 14 verses, but just reading a, a few verses to get the refresh our minds of the content of this section of Scripture. In verse 1 we read, 
And Jesus answered and spake unto them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king which made a marriage for his son. And he sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding and they would not come. Again he sent forth other servants saying, Tell them which were bidden, Behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fattenings are killed and all things are ready. Come unto the marriage. But they made light of it. They went their way, one to his farm, another to his merchandise, and the remnant took his servants and entreated them spitefully and slew them. And so in verse 7 we read, when the king hears thereof his wrath, and he sends forth his murderers, his army to destroy those murderers and burn up their city. And he sends his servants, in verse 8, out into the streets with the instructions, verse 9, Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as shall find, bid to the marriage. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all, as many as they found, both bad and good, and the wedding was furnished with guests. When the king came in to see the guests, he saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment. And so the man, being speechless, was cast out of that wedding feast. But you see, there's a parable in which the Lord Jesus Christ shows how Yahweh had called the nation of Israel to a wedding feast that he was preparing for his son. But you see, the nation of Israel uh, refused to come. They made light of it. They were so absorbed in their farm and their merchandise and so on and so forth. And, and, And they evil entreated the servants, the prophets that Yahweh rose up. And of course in verse 7 the king was wroth and he sent his armies, destroyed the murderers and burned up their city. And we can so clearly see that that would apply to uh, the, the events of AD 70. And then the servants going out into the highways, bidding all who will come to the marriage, is a type of the gospel being preached under the Gentiles and all who would hear would come. You see, in, ver- in, uh, in verses 3, 4, 8 and 9, where we have the words called and bidden, in each of those places, the word in the Greek is the word kalia. And it, 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 was, it was the call or the bid or the invitation for those people to come to the wedding. Well, we find that word kalia used in such places used in in a lot of places in the New Testament but these are just one or two examples in the second of Peter chapter 1 and verse 3 we read second Peter chapter 1 and verse 3 according as his divine power has given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue. So you see that invitation that went out to those people to come to the wedding was equivalent to the call of the truth, to the call that we have received to glory and to virtue. The same word is used in uh, 1 Corinthians 1.9 where again where it speaks of the call of the truth 
or we're called to fellowship with God. And Romans 8.30 is another example which speaks of the call of the truth which every one of us has received. And in that call of the truth there is the invitation to come to that wedding, that marriage feast that the God of heaven is preparing for his son. And so you see, just as the marriage feast in ancient times might be spread over seven days, so we find here that God is preparing a marriage feast for his son. And over these periods of time, the 6,000 years, and also in the 7,000 year when the invitation will still be going forth, God is inviting people to come and partake and to rejoice in the great wedding that he is preparing for his son, building up to that time when Yahweh himself will be manifested all in all. Yahweh will be at one with all his creation. And so you see there in Matthew 22, I believe, we're showing the significance of this marriage feast and the invitation to a marriage and the period of time when the guests would rejoice together and encourage and give words of encouragement and exhortation to that uh, man and woman who were about to be married as that festivity came to its conclusion. And so we see then the significance, I believe, or I hope we can see the significance by now, of that marriage that took place upon the third day or the seventh day of that first week of the Lord's ministry. We learn in that first verse of John 2 also that this marriage was to take place in Cana of Galilee. Now when we look at this word Cana, this name Cana, there are some very interesting thoughts that brought to our mind. Because if you look up the word Cana in Strong's Concordance for instance, you'll find that Strong will tell you that, that, that it's a word of Hebrew origin and he'll refer you over to the Hebrew section of, the, of his concordance. And, we, and from there we will learn that the name Cana comes from the word Cana, which Strong tells us is the feminine form of the word Cana. And the word Cana means a reed, a reed that stands upright out of the ground. It's rendered in some places as sweet cane. But we find that word used in certain ways. We find, for instance, in, in Ezekiel chapter 40 and verse 3, and right through actually the, the account in Ezekiel of the building of Ezekiel's temple, we find that very word is used of the measuring reed that the angel used to measure every part of that house of the age to come. We find the word is used in Exodus chapter 30 where in that place it is rendered calamus and the calamus uh, was a, an ingredient of the anointing oil. We find also it's used in, in uh, Exodus um, ex- in the book of Exodus consistently used of the branches of the lampstand. You know, when we start putting these thoughts together and relate them to that marriage that took place at that time. How significant all these things become. You see, that measuring reed, for example, 
Every part of that temple was measured with that measuring ring. Every part of that temple had to conform with the measure that was in the angel's hand. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 13, we find that Christ is our measure. Ephesians um, chapter 4 and at verse 13, we're told, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. You know, when we go over to the 21st chapter of the Apocalypse, and there, under the figure of the, under the symbol of the heavenly Jerusalem, we have symbolised to us the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 17 we find that that symbolic city likewise was measured. Verse 17, and he measured the wall thereof an hundred and forty and four cubits according to the measure of a man, that is of the angel. We believe that that measure through which the bride of Christ is measured is none other than the measure of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And you know, when that great marriage takes place, and when, we're, when the saints are gathered there at the judgment seat of Christ, they will be measured according to the measure of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if Christ can find some reflection of himself in them, then they will be selected as his bride. And so we should, brethren and sisters, today be consistently comparing ourselves with the measure of the Lord Jesus Christ and striving to reach up and to conform with the principles that we see exhibited in him. So we believe that the measuring reed is of great significance in associated with this marriage that took place upon that particular day. You see, take also the usage of the word in relation to the branches of the lampstand. You know, in that lampstand, those branches were, uh, were one with the lampstand. And it speaks of the complete union that the bride must have with the Lord Jesus Christ. A union that must be developed in our lives today as we, we seek into the pages of God's Word and as we become united and grafted onto the Lord Jesus Christ so that it's his life principle that is manifesting itself in us. And how significant that we have that union brought before us, the union of the branches and the lampstand. As we look at this, this marriage that took place at Canaan, the uniting of the bride and the bridegroom together as one in union together. And then of course there's a way the word is used describing the calamus, an ingredient of the anointing oil. You see a reed which grows up out of the ground. It speaks of uprightness. It speaks of that uprightness that the truth must create within a person. It is said that that sweet cane that was used in, the, uh, in, in, that, in, in that anointing oil it is said that it sent forth its best perfume when it was bruised. And you see, it speaks, and thus that cain speaks of uprightness manifested through suffering and sacrifice to send forth a, a sweet perfume pleasing unto Yahweh. And that should, of course, be the motive 
of every one of us who has received that call to glory and to virtue, to receive the word of truth, to endeavour to allow it to create in us an uprightness of life, even though that might cause suffering and sacrifice at this particular time, that we might send forth that sweet fragrance which is pleading unto our bridegroom. And so you see, the word Cana of Galilee is, is very significant. The word Galilee means a circle. And a circle, of course, means something which is eternal. It has no end. It goes on and on and on. You can never find the end. And of course it speaks of that eternal union which will take place between the Lord Jesus Christ and his bride in the future times. But of course Galilee was a region that was despised by the Jewish people. It was despised because of the large number of Gentiles that were there. And so here out of that despised region, this reed was rising up as it were in uprightness. And it speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ and his ecclesia which will be united with him in the future time. Finally in verse 1 of chapter 2 we read and the mother of Jesus was there. Now as we go through this little story we find that she wasn't only there but she was there in a position of considerable influence and authority. You see take the words of verse 5 for example his mother said unto the servants whatsoever he saith unto you do it and they did it. They obeyed her. And so she was obviously in a position of some considerable influence and authority at that wedding. Now the implication of that is that this wedding at Cana was, prob- was the wedding probably of a close relative or at least of a very close friend but more likely a close relative because Mary was there acting in some sort of uh, authority and uh, had some sort of influence in that house. And so we assume then that it was a marriage of a close relative to Mary. And thus it was a close relative to the Lord Jesus Christ. Through his mother, the Lord Jesus Christ also would be related to the people involved in that marriage. And how significant, brethren and sisters, because the Lord Jesus Christ is related to all humanity through his mother. Back in Genesis chapter 3, we read of the, the woman and her seed. Typed here, I believe, in Mary and her son. And that seed of the woman, the, 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 the saviour that, that Yahweh was to provide, out of the woman, that saviour had to be related to all mankind. He had to be a bearer of our nature to be able to atone for our sins. And here at that marriage, we believe the implication at any rate is that Jesus was possibly a blood relative through Mary to, to those people gathered there at that particular wedding at that time. We find, of course, that, that um, uh, when we, as we go on through, through into, into verse 2 we read and both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage they were called to the marriage 
How significant. And we find that word called there is the word kalia. The very word we looked at before in relation to Matthew 22. The very call that, 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 that's spoken of in Second of Peter 1.3 about the call that comes to us through the knowledge of the truth. The call to glory and to virtue. And so here both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And the disciples obviously received their call. They received their invitation to that marriage through the Lord Jesus Christ. They were called because they were associated with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we put all these things together out of verses 1 and 2, we can see that there is a far greater significance between these events than what meets the eye. It's not just a little story of the Lord Jesus Christ attending a wedding and a few interesting little things that happened there. We can see there's a great wealth of spiritual teaching behind these words as we consider the significance of every detail uh, as we find them set forth in these verses. Now, passing on then into verse 3 we read, And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus said unto him, They have no wine. When they wanted wine. Literally, those words uh, should be, When the wine failed. Now, the diaglot renders it, The wine falling short. In the Revised Standard Version, when the wine failed. That rendering, when the wine failed, seems to express the true meaning of those words. And so there they were, gathered at the wedding, gathered together for this time of joyous festivity, when they would rejoice in the union that was taking place, when they would give words of exhortation and encouragement uh, uh, to, to one another. And in the midst of that festivity, the wine failed. You see, probably this indicates also that the family were very poor and they were unable to meet the needs of the occasion. I mean the Lord Jesus Christ for instance had just arrived and he got five disciples with him. Probably the hosts weren't expecting those five disciples. I mean they had only just become associated with the Lord Jesus Christ and extending the invitation to them there were five more people and their supply of wine failed you know it would be a most embarrassing and distressing situation for all involved he said I've invited, invited everybody together to rejoice together and hear what was considered in those times as almost a basic necessity at such an occasion as that and it ran short and they didn't seem to be able to do anything about it, as we shall see. They completely lacked the ability to supply that need. And so we assume that the family was quite poor and unable to, to just go out and buy further supplies of wine at that time. Now, we just pause for a moment then to look at the significance of wine as, as, it, as it relates to the typical outworking of this, this event. Now wine, in ancient times, was the pure fermented juice of the grape. I don't know much about wine making, but I understand that many of the wines we have today are, are uh, 
uh, uh, fortified wines, they're made with distilled alcohol and all sorts of other things, and uh, uh, they contain a much higher alcohol content than ever did the pure fermented grape juice of ancient times. But be that as it may, in ancient times the grapes were merely uh, picked when they were fully ripe and mature, they were put into the wine press, they were crushed, the juice ran out, the juice was gathered into vats and in those vats it would ferment. And under the warm circumstances of of, um, uh, the climate in those regions, fermentation would start very, very soon. And the wine would go forth what was called a tumultuous stage in that it would bubble up and the fermentation would be like a bubbling up of newness of life within that juice of the grape. Wine is said in the scripture in a couple of places. Um, we'll, look at, we'll just look at Judges chapter 9 and verse 13 firstly. In Judges chapter 9 and verse 13 we read, And the vine said unto them, Should I leave my wine, which cheereth God and man, and go to be promoted over the trees? And so you see, there we read something of the way in which wine is spoken of in the scriptures. It cheers God and man. One might wonder how wine can cheer God. We can understand how it can cheer man. But one would wonder how it can cheer God. But we'll just leave that thought in our minds for a moment. We'll go over to Psalm 104. In Psalm 104 and verse 15 we read, again speaking of wine, and wine that maketh glad the heart of man, so you see in the one place we find that it cheers, the cheers God and man, it makes man cheerful. Here we read that wine makes glad the heart of man. So wine, you see, could be used as a symbol of joy and of rejoicing. We find that uh, such places as Isaiah 65 show that wine is used in the scriptures typical of other things also. In Isaiah 55 and verse 1 we read a call goes forth Ho everyone that thirsteth come ye to the waters and buy and he that has come ye to the waters and he that has no money come ye buy and eat yea come buy wine and milk without money and without price Now here of course is a call, an invitation going forth for people to come and drink of the gospel message. To come and drink deeply of the word of Yahweh. And there it's under the symbol of water. The water of life, the basic necessity for sustenance of life. But then to that are added the symbols of wine and milk. And to that basic... uh, Necessity for the sustenance of of life is added wine which speaks of joy and rejoicing and milk which which builds and strengthens the body. But you see here all these symbols are symbols of the word of truth. 
the word of truth that can be received and imbibed and that can rejoice the heart of a man and it can build him and strengthen him in character. You know, Jeremiah chapter 51 and verse 7 used in a somewhat different, uh, different way. But nevertheless, it also uses wine as a symbol of teaching. Jeremiah 51 and verse 7. Babylon has been a golden cup in Yahweh's hand that made all the earth drunken. The nations have drunken of her wine, therefore the nations are mad. We know that the, it speaks of the teaching, the false teaching, the false teaching that went forth from Babylon of old, which all nations of the earth drank of and became drunken and mad. They, they, they couldn't discern the clear things of the truth. Just as Mystery Babylon today or the Catholic Church, the nations of the earth drink of the wine of her fornication and they're drunken with it and they, they, they can't discern right sound principles of truth because they're drunken with the teaching that goes forth from that system. Now in the 25th chapter of Isaiah, again we have wine used as a symbol of, the, in this case again, a symbol of the truth which can give a person a sound mind and, and uh, cause joy and rejoicing of heart. Isaiah 25 and verse 6, here speaking of the future time, when the Lord Jesus Christ will be in the earth again, when the resurrection would have taken place. And we read in verse 6, And in this mountain shall Yahweh of armies make unto all people a feast of fat things, a feast of wines on the leaves, of fat things full of marrow, of wines on the leaves well refined, and he will destroy in this mountain the face of the covering cast over all people and the veil that is spread over all nations. And there's the time, brethren and sisters, when the veil will be torn away from the eyes of the people of this world when that covering was cast over them today, keeping them in darkness and in ignorance of the things of the truth, it will be torn aside and there the, the people will, will, will learn of the truth. They will learn of the truth and it will be like a great feast of fat things, of, of, of wines on the leaves, well refined. And as the true teaching of Yahweh goes forth from, the, from Jerusalem, and people's eyes are open, they will then rejoice in the things of the truth. And there I believe again we see a wine used as a symbol of, of doctrine, of true teaching. In pages of the New Testament, we barely need to remind ourselves of these things. We're reminded of them every Sunday morning. But in Matthew chapter 26 and verses 27 and 28, we find the words of the Lord Jesus Christ just before his death. Verses 27 and 28 And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them saying 
drink ye all of it, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. And every Sunday morning we partake of wine as a reminder of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, in Matthew 21, we have the parable of the vineyard. Matthew chapter 21, it's only a couple of pages back. And in verse 33 we read, Here another parable. There was a certain householder which planted a vineyard and he hedged it round about and he digged a wine press in it and he built a tower and let it out to husbandmen. You know, connecting that with Isaiah chapter 5 where we have almost identical words. We learn that the vineyard of Yahweh of hosts is the house of Israel. And Yahweh, we're told in Psalm 80, how I think it's Psalm 80, how Yahweh brought a vine out of Egypt and he planted it in that land. And Israel was that typical vineyard. They were the vine. But what was the fruit that Yahweh wanted? The very fact, you know, that he put a wine press in the middle of that vineyard tells us what he wanted from that vine. He wanted wine. And you know, as the Lord Jesus Christ used that wine, and as we partake of that wine every Sunday morning, we see that wine as symbolic of his blood, of his life that was given to Yahweh. That's what Yahweh wanted of his nation of Israel. He wanted them to give their lives unto him. But you see, they were too preoccupied in other things. They were too concerned with the things of their own life to give their lives to Yahweh and he never got the fruit of his vineyard. So you see, as we put these things together, we see the significance of wine. You see, wine is a symbol of the teaching of the truth that we must receive into ourselves. It can cause us to joy and rejoice, but it must cause us to trample the flesh underfoot, just as those grapes have to be trampled down in that wine press. That we must trample the, trample the flesh under the foot, that we might give our lives unto Yahweh. You know, when people do that, it cheers God. That's how wine cheers God and man. You know, when we receive the wine of his teaching, we receive it, we rejoice in it, we joy in it, and we trample the flesh underfoot, recognising it's a a thing of no value. And we we try to give ourselves unto Yahweh in newness of life, just as, as that wine crushed from the grape, bubbles up and ferments with newness of life. It goes through a tumultuous age as it bubbles up, as it were, with enthusiasm, as we should bubble up with enthusiasm over the things of the truth and how we give, we want to give our lives under Yahweh. That's the significance of wine. And so you see, wine speaks of joy and rejoicing and it also speaks of that principle of newness of life which the truth can produce in us. You know, when Yahweh sees that newness of life in us, then it cheers him also, because that's the fruit that he wants from his vineyard. That's what he wants in us. That's why he's given us this word of truth. 
that we might give our lives unto him and ultimately be united with the Lord Jesus Christ in the, um, in the great marriage of the future time. And so you see, when we come coming back then to that marriage at Cana, we find that in the midst of the festivities, the wine failed. The wine failed. Now it's interesting perhaps just to pause for a moment and look at that word, the wine failed. In, in the authorised version it's a wanted wine. It's a word that's used in, again in several places in the New Testament but it's just looking at a couple of I believe significant places Romans chapter 3 and verse 23 Romans 3 and verse 23 for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God that's the word come short of the glory of God the apostle is speaking how all men have missed the mark. They've fallen short of the glory of God. It's perhaps just a couple of places in the book of Hebrews we could look at. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 1. Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. Here's the word again. Any of you should seem to come short of it. Hebrews 12 and verse 15. Looking diligently lest any fail of the grace of God. Or as the uh, margin says, fall from. But it's that same word again. Lest any fail from the grace of God. So just as it's possible for people to fall short of the glory of God, just as it is possible for people to fall short of the grace of God, just as it is possible for people to come short of entering into the kingdom of God, so upon this marriage in Cana, the wine fell short. It failed in the midst of the feast. And as we've said, it's a very embarrassing set of circumstances. You see, but it's so typical of Israel. Here was the nation, you see, the nation of Israel called to the marriage of, the, uh, of God's son. They fell short of the purpose for which God had called them. Seeking righteousness by works of law, they become burdened down with a system of legal formalism that could give them neither joy nor be productive of newness of life, nor could it cheer God either. You see, how easy it is us also to fall into a negative approach to the truth that can become destitute of that joyous, self-sacrificing service that Yahweh requires in us. Just as Israel fell short, it's possible for us to fall short and the wine fell short at that wedding feast at Cana of Galilee. And so in verse, um, verse 3 we read and the mother of Jesus said unto him they had no wine. You know, 
as we contemplate these circumstances, it, it indicates the absolute inability of the host of that wedding to, to supply the need. What could they do? You see, here, the mother of Jesus had to come to the Lord Jesus Christ and say, well, I've got no wine. You know, if they'd been wealthy people, they'd have just said to the servants, well, we'll go down the street or wherever you have to go and buy further supplies of wine. But they weren't able to do that. They they had no ability whatever to supply that need. You know, and it takes us back to the very state that we're in, the very state that Israel's been in. You know, we go back to the book of Genesis. The promise to, to Eve was that that, uh, God was going to provide a seed from her. Eve was helpless to do anything of herself. All she could do was to look to that seed that God was ultimately going to produce for help. Then we go to Abraham and Sarah. Great and precious promises made to them. But it all hinged upon the birth of a child that they couldn't produce. They were absolutely helpless. And all they could look was look with dependence upon God that ultimately he would provide that seed. You know, likewise, we're in the same position. We are sinners in bondage to sin and death. We, can't, we, we have no ability to do anything about it. All we can do is look to the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, and that was the situation here when the wine failed at that wedding feast at at Cana of Galilee. And so in verse um, 4 we have the reply of the Lord Jesus Christ to his mother. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. Now as those words stand in the authorised version and the thoughts they convey to our mind. It seemed a rather harsh and thoughtless way to answer her under these circumstances. But I don't believe the Lord Jesus Christ was being harsh to her. Neither do I believe he was being unreasonable in the things that he said. The very address, woman, we find it used several times through the New Testament and the Lord Jesus Christ frequently referred to people as to uh, women as women. In fact, on the, in the 19th chapter of the Gospel of John, as he's hanging on the cross and he's looking down upon his mother, surely under these circumstances the Lord Jesus Christ would have spoke with the greatest of tenderness and understanding to his mother under those circumstances. But in verse 26 of John 19 we read, When Jesus therefore saw his mother, and the disciple standing by whom he loved, he saith unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Now there was no element of rebuke there. No element of harshness in that statement. It was a statement of, of, of gentleness and understanding and help and comfort to her at that time. And he used that statement, Woman. And so I don't believe the Lord Jesus Christ was being harsh to his mother at that time. We find that that, uh, uh, Mary didn't seem to accept the answer as a rebuke. She accepted it as meaning that he intended to do something to relieve the situation. 
Hence her statement in verse 5, saying to the servants, whatsoever he says unto you, do it. So Mary understood from the Lord's answer in verse 4 that he intended to do something to relieve that situation at some particular time. But let's just look a little more closely at the words of the Lord. He used the statement, woman, instead of mother. Because you see, the Lord Jesus Christ was also the Son of God. He was the Son of God and the seed of the woman. But now you see, the Lord Jesus Christ had launched out on a new ministry. He was no longer uh, um, answerable to his mother. He had, he had ended up on a higher calling than that of service to mother. And the prime objective of his life now was service to God. And surely in the mind of the Lord Jesus Christ, Genesis 3.15 must have been paramount. The seed of the woman. And here he's reminding her of his position. He was that God-provided seed from the woman. So he's reminding Mary, I believe, of the fact that now he has entered upon a higher ministry and he cannot now be dictated to by Mary even though she was his mother. But where he says, the words, what have I to do with thee? They're words that perhaps are a little difficult for us to understand. It is suggested that it is a Hebraic sort of a um, phrase which really means what have we in common? I believe that that really is, 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 is what the Lord was trying to express there. He says to her, what have we in common? And I believe he was telling Mary here that Mary and him now were viewing this situation in two entirely different ways. We can understand the position of Mary here she is in some position of authority there. She can see an extremely embarrassing and distressing situation arising. She's filled with concern. She, she, she wants to relieve the embarrassment of the hosts. She wants, she wants wine to be provided so that the guests don't know that anything's happened. And she's filled with concern over the embarrassment and distress of the people who have put on this wedding. The Lord Jesus Christ, of course, is looking at it in an entirely different way. The Lord is looking upon this situation as a means by which he can teach his disciples and all who have eyes to see how he could teach them very deep, profound, spiritual lessons. He was looking at that situation as an opportunity to manifest forth the glory of his Father. You see, and, the, and, and so he points out to Mary that they're thinking on different wavelengths. He says, all right, you're concerned over this situation for one reason. I'm going to use it for another. And so there's re you see, he says, what have we got in common? We're not viewing this, this thing in, in, in the same way. But then he says, mine hour is not yet come. In other words, he's telling Mary that because he's got different purposes in view, he will act when he sees it's right, not before. That seems to be the way in which Mary understood his answer, for in verse 5 she turns around and she says to the servants, 
whatever he says to you, you do it. So she obviously understood that he was going to do something. And I believe that that was the, the answer that the Lord conveyed to her. He reminded her that he was the seed of the woman. That he had a higher calling now than, than, than the uh, service to mother. He pointed out to her that he was viewing the situation but he was viewing it in a different light to what she was, from a different viewpoint. And he was told her that he would act when he saw the time was right. And so Mary, in verse 5, she turns round and she says to the servants, whatever he tells you to do, you do it. Now that shows Mary's absolute conviction and confidence in her son. Now probably for many years, with Joseph possibly dead, Mary had had to look to the Lord Jesus Christ as her eldest son to, to, for, for support and help in, in, in all the little problems and crises that, that, that arise in life from time to time. And she was used to looking to him and leaning upon him. And she had absolute confidence that he would do something to relieve this situation. And so you see, she's got absolute confidence in her son. And more than that, it seems, that she was able to convey that confidence to the servants. Well, you know, as we follow down, we find that those servants act in quite a remarkable way. Again, teaching very profound lessons. But we'll come to that, we'll look at that when we come to it. And so Mary instructs the servants there to do whatever the Lord tells them to do. Now in verse 6 we're told there were set there six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews containing two or three firkins apiece. Um, it seems that they were quite large vessels. He suggested that the authorities differ upon the actual capacity of these pots but, but, but it, it seems to be about nine gallons each. So there were pots of quite some considerable size. Now they were there uh, for contained water for the washing after the manner of the purifying of the Jews. And the Jews would, would, would draw the water out of these pots and they would use it for the uh, ceremonial washing of hands and so on and so forth that was so characteristic of their religion at that particular time. Now first of all we note that there was six water pots. Of course six is a number of man. It's used repeatedly through scripture being a number of man. We read, we find that, that they were pots of stone. Now that word stone is quite, can carry some interesting thoughts. It only appears three times in scripture. Uh, it, it, it appears here in this, this verse. And it appears also in 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 3 where it speaks of the tables of stone on which the Ten Commandments the table, were, were, were engraved. The tables of the covenant. The other place it's used is Revelation 9 and verse 20. But, but, but you see here in 2 Corinthians 3 verse 3 that, uh, that stone there is associated with the Mosaic Covenant. And here we have six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews. 
You know, what the Jews did with the Mosaic Covenant, they took Yahweh's law and they tried to use it to establish their own righteousness. You see, they never got the message of the grace. The, 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 the doctrine must be received, the flesh trodden underfoot and discarded, and Yahweh's word generating a new life, a new life principle. Here they thought they could take Yahweh's law and make themselves into righteous people. See, here was the flesh taking the principles of Yahweh's truth, endeavouring to establish its own righteousness. And hence we've got six water pots of stone associating them with the Mosaic Covenant. That's precisely what Israel was doing at that particular time. You see, we're told here that it was, it was after the manner of purifying of the Jews. You know, Jewish religion at that time had degenerated into a burdensome, Formalism that was absolutely dead. Now, Paul in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 15 writes concerning the way that the Jews laboured under that uh, Mosaic covenant at that time, having having lost sight of its purpose, uh, and so on and so forth. We see that Christ died that he might deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage, a washing of hands, doing of this, doing of that, not doing this, not doing that. It was a lifeless, dead formalism that could give neither joy nor newness of life. You see, and those six water pots, I believe, stood as a beautiful symbol of Jewish religion as it stood at that time a beautiful symbol of that legal formalism into which Judaism had sunk, in which there was no joy for man, no newness of life, and hence no joy for Yahweh also. You see, and that's what the state that Israel were in at that particular time. And here they are at that marriage feast. The wine has failed. And the Lord Jesus Christ looks around, and there they are, there's those six pots set out, that so beautifully symbolise the 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 the, um, the Jewish Judaism at that time, sunk into a system of legal formalism, trying to seek righteousness by works of law, an absolutely hopeless situation, with neither joy nor newness of life. And so you see, as the Lord looked around and he saw the wine had failed, he saw these six water pots the time had come for him to act. So in verse 7 we read that he spoke to the servants and the servants obeyed. He spoke and they did it. In verse 7 he said unto them, fill the water pots with water and they filled them up to the brim. And then in verse 8 he speaks again and he says unto them, draw out now and bear unto the governor of the feast and they bear it. You know, that verse 8 is really quite remarkable. You know, servants in ancient times held a very different position in relation to their masters than they do today. Today it's the servant that tells the master what he's going to do. 
if the master doesn't like it he tells him to go and jump in the lake but, but in ancient times that was not the case and a servant would be fearful of the, of the consequences of offending and upsetting his master now you see picture the set of circumstances here's a wedding feast here's a, a guest that the feast has come in they've been told to obey whatever he says he says right fill those pots up with water and he says, right, now, draw some out and take it to the governor of the feast. And the governor of the feast wanted wine. How would you feel if you were one of those servants and you've got to go up to him with a glass of water? What sort of reception might you get? But you see, the remarkable thing is that they did it. They bore that water out of those pots and they gave, presented it under the ruler of the feast. You see, those servants had implicit trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. They had implicit trust in him and they did as he said. Here are a little group of men who had faith in the Son of God. You know, that was what Israel lacked. You know, in the Galatians 3 verses 23 to 25, the Apostle points out the very purpose for which Yahweh gave the law. But um, Israel fell short of it. They failed. Galatians 3 verses 23 to 25 we read, But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up under the faith which would afterwards be revealed. Wherefore the law is our schoolmaster to bring us under Christ that we might be justified by faith. But Israel never saw it. Israel never saw that faith. They thought they could be justified by works of law. They had no faith, no trust in the Son of God. And that's why their religion had become such a lifeless burden, destitute of joy and rejoicing. But you see, the Lord Jesus Christ now was teaching through those servants that if they would have implicit faith in the Son of God, that legal formalism could be turned into a, into a joyous thing. If only they could see the Son of God in that, understand the types and the lessons. If only they could see the Son of God in that. It would be a joyous thing, generating a newness of life within them that would not only be joyous to them but would be pleasing to God also. And you see, out of those very water pots which spoke of Jewish formalism at that time, he commanded the servants to draw out that water and take it to the governor of the feast. And here in verse 9 we read, And when the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew. The governor of the feast called the bridegroom and said unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine. And when men have well drunk, then that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. And so the governor of the feast comments that this wine that they were getting at the end was better than the wine that they had at the start. You know, how typical of the way in which Yahweh has consistently worked. 
You see, we, we find that, that um, as we contrast the um, as we contrast the, the way in which Yahweh works, it was the 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 the, the, uh, the best comes last. You see, Adam came first. The second Adam came last. The old covenant came first. The new covenant comes afterwards. You see, today we rejoice in the things of the truth. But rejoicing in the kingdom will far exceed any rejoicing that we can possibly experience now. It seems to be a principle of Yahweh that he always gives the best last. Now as we contrast these two covenants, the old covenant and the new covenant, it's interesting that when Yahweh sent Moses back into Egypt to bring Israel out and to establish the Mosaic covenant with them uh, at Mount Sinai, the first sign that was executed upon Egypt was turning water into blood. And there that life, that water, that basic necessity of life became blood, bringing sorrow and distress and death. But here the Lord Jesus Christ, who came to confirm the new covenant, his first miracle was turning water into wine, which can give joy and newness of life. And that's the contrast of those two covenants. One could only bring sorrow and death when they saw it as a means of establishing their own righteousness. But when they saw the Lord Jesus Christ in it and had faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then it could become a joyous, life-giving thing pleasing both to God and to man. You know, in in that verse 8, where Christ says to the servants, draw out now. The word he uses for draw out now is a word that can apply to the drawing of water out of a well. You know, how significant when we go back to to Isaiah chapter 12. Because in Isaiah chapter 12 we're given a little picture of Israel in the future. As they will be be, uh, restored to, to... to the truth and to an uh, acceptable relationship with Yahweh. We read in Isaiah 12 and verse 3 of the, of the way in which Israel will rejoice at that time. Therefore with joy shall ye draw water out of the wells of salvation. Now and as those servants draw the, drew the water out of those water pots, just as if they were drawing water out of a well, and as they bore that wine under the, under the governor of the feast, what joy that wine would have brought. What joy it would have brought to that wedding feast at that time. As the, as the embarrassment and the distress was beginning to bear heavy upon the hosts that had invited together the guests. And here now, from nowhere as it were, here was a supply of wine that brought joy and gladness and happiness on that occasion. And it's a little foreshadowing of the joy and the gladness and the rejoicing that Israel will experience in the future time when their eyes are open, when they accept the Lord Jesus Christ, when they, like those servants at that feast, had faith in the Son of God. Then the truth will become a joyous, rejoicing thing that will generate in them a newness of life. You know, and as we look at the experiences of Israel, as they lapse into this 
plight in which they were in the days of the Lord Jesus Christ, typified by that wedding feast with no wine. You know, there's lessons for us in that, brethren and sisters. We need to beware. It's very easy for us to ecclesial life, to become a formal, lifeless ritual, just as Judaism had come to the Jews at that time. It's very easy for us just to see life in the truth, going to the meeting every Sunday morning, going here this night, going there, not doing this, not being allowed to do that. We can't go there, we can't do this. It can become a formal, uh, lifeless burden almost if we're not careful. But you see, we have to have our lives invigorated by a living, powerful faith in the Son of God. It's very easy sometimes for life in the truth to become a negative thing where we see all the faults in one another. We see all the wrongs that might be done and we lose sight of the glorious privileges that Yahweh has given unto us and what trivial little things are things of the present are. You see, and it's very easy for us to fall into that position that Israel fell in. But we need to keep our eyes firmly upon the Son of God. We need to develop faith in Him, confidence in, in, his, in his ability to provide our needs, to meet our wants and to fit us for the Kingdom of God. And so the best wine comes last. Jumping down then to uh, John chapter 2 and verse 11 we read, This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory and his disciples believed on him. Notice how it's repeated there that it was done in Cana of Galilee to impress upon us, I believe, the lessons of the very name of that place and and their associations with the great marriage that is to take place between the Lord Jesus Christ and his ecclesia. And we're told there that this was the beginning of miracles or signs. That is, it was designed to teach lessons, as I hope we have seen. And he manifested forth at that time his glory. In John chapter 1 and verse 14, we're told something of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now as we look at the Lord Jesus Christ, as he met the need of that particular time at that wedding feast, we see how beautifully that glory was manifested forth. You see, he was a man obviously, in whom was invested tremendous power, He was a man who was demonstrated by the very things that he did that he had a very special relationship with God. He was set forth there, I believe, as the Son of God. As the Son of God who had come to meet the needs of his people. But you see, he's there at that wedding. This very distressing and embarrassing set of circumstances arise. Mary comes to him and the Lord Jesus Christ 
shows that he recognised the plight of the people. He understood their helplessness to relieve the situation. You see, how typical that is of the position that Israel were in. They were in a terrible plight, really. They were absolutely helpless to get themselves out of the situation that they were in. But the Lord Jesus Christ recognised that plight. You know, it's like us. We're in a terrible situation of ourselves, in bondage to sin and death, and of ourselves, not a hope in the world of ever being able to get out of it. But you see, the Lord Jesus Christ recognises our plight, just as he recognised the plight of the people at that marriage in Cana. And not only did he recognise the plight they were in, but he was a man who had the ability and the willingness to help. And there was a man in the midst of Israel who had the ability and the willingness to help them if only they would have faith and trust in him. You see, here there's a man who has the ability and the willingness to help every one of us to lift us out of the plight that we're in and to give us hope of eternal life in the future age. And he has the willingness and the ability to give us that help if we have faith and trust in him. See, that was all the Lord called off those servants. He never touched those water pots. He never did anything himself. He just called upon those servants to have implicit trust in him. You know, that water became wine. It became a joyous thing that could generate newness of life within them. You see, and there, in the very things that he did, the Lord Jesus Christ was set forth as a man who is full of grace. It's by his grace that we are gathered here tonight. And it's by his grace that we are able to, to rejoice over the beautiful principles of Yahweh's truth. But you see, as we look at everything that he did upon that day, the way he took his disciples on that particular day of the week to that particular town, to that particular event, the very things that he did and said and called upon people to do at that time. The whole thing was full of truth. It was the purpose of God from beginning to end that was shining out of that man at that time. There was his glory, brethren and sisters, a glory declaring him to be the Son of God, showing him to be full of grace, showing him to be full of truth. And in that man, brethren and sisters, is the measuring reed, the measuring reed that we should strive to reach unto and to, to, to at least shine forth some of his likeness. And you see there, under that first sign in Cana of Galilee, that glory was shone forth and it is written that his disciples believed on him. Or as it should read literally, as the dialogue has it, his disciples believed into him. You see, by this sign, Christ had unfolded to his disciples a beautiful revelation of the truth, a beautiful revelation of his grace and of his ability to help. And they understood it they accepted it and they were drawn closer and closer into him. And may it be, brethren and sisters, the same with every one of us.